This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. Not too long ago, the most popular game on the planet was World of Warcraft. I confess, I played it for more years than I care to admit, and my human rogue rags was a joy to play. What never occurred to me was the technology and innovation that made these games possible would someday lead to the hardware that would support blockchain, cryptocurrency, quantum computing, and other incredibly powerful tools. And this week, I'm hosting Rob Enderly, a technology futurist, a writer, and to be honest, pretty spectacular character, my favorite kind. Rob has been reporting on technology before most of us knew to care about it. Our conversation today is going to cover that hardware that I mentioned earlier, but also we're going to dive into the 3D web. What is it? Why should we care? Along with the future of electric cars, which may surprise you, uh, our grid and other important topics. Join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanna, let's just dive into it. You recently... Um, wrote something. And for people, actually, why don't we start here? For people who don't know you, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm, I'm a technology analyst. Um, I came to the technology market in 1984, went to work for Rome Systems, um, went to work there because they had something called a great place to work department, which I was really <laughs> excited about because I really thought that the, the place to work would be somebody, would be a company where they cared a great deal about the care and feeding of their employees. Yeah. Being an employee, that was important to me. It, it kind of surprised me how how low a priority that was for so many of my peers. Right. Uh, and the interesting thing is when I interviewed at Rome, they, they said, you know, you might be worried about IBM's interest in the company, but we have a contract that says they'll never buy us. Right. Um, good lesson for me. They bought the company by the end of that year, just when I became eligible for uh, for profit sharing. So I never got my profit sharing. Um, and then they destroyed the profit anyway, so it didn't make a lot of difference. <laughs> um, and I stayed with them for about 10 years. Then I went to work for DataQuest and the um, and had my first overall experience with a whole bunch of CEOs uh, telling me I was never going to work in this environment again. I did, I as an internal analyst at IBM, I'd been very frustrated about the quality of numbers. So I fixed that. I did the most accurate forecast that DataQuest ever did and discovered that CEOs don't like accurate forecasts unless yeah. they're the ones that are coming out on top. And so I had a lot of people trying to put me out of business. I then went to work for Giga Information Group, um, a Gideon Gartner company, and the um, and I stayed with them for about 10 years, uh, leaving after they were acquired by Forrester. Forrester and I didn't get along uh, as the senior research fellow. So all the other researchers effectively reported uh, to me for their research product. And that gave me a lot of breath. I also owned uh, media for the company because every reporter on the planet called me. So they figured, well, why fix something that's not broken? We'll just make him in charge of it. So that the, off I went. And then since 2002, I've been out on my own. And I tend to cover technology broadly. I write for a number of publications, relatively large number of publications, very prolific. And the, in fact, uh, throughout my career, people have, have often come up to me somewhat jokingly and said, we need to, we need to break your fingers because you're, you're destroying the curve. Uh, but the uh, but I've always been kind of an of, uh, of an overachiever, which is which, as I mentioned, has created some interpersonal problems with coworkers. Um, but that's what I do. I, I cover technology broadly. I tend to look at the things that interact between technology levels, as opposed to a specialist. And also, my mentor at, at, at IBM, I was part of executive resources, which meant I was in line to be CEO, which would never have happened. But right. hey, it's nice to say. And she said I was never going to advance unless I specialized, and I've spent most of my career proving her wrong. Yeah. So let's dive in today. 
Yeah. Um, thinking of your of the articles that I'm reacting to here lately, um, you and I have uh, I don't know if affection is the right word, but experience. I have a good experience with this company called Nvidia. Yeah. Uh, I primarily as a gamer. Plus, I've been there, and there's just something about Jensen. Even kind of, I'm not jaded, but I'm. Probably the word I'm looking for is skeptical when a CEO comes up and says, I got a vision and here's an idea and whatever. And he is infectious. It's difficult for me. He's good. To- I mean, the, th- the thing is, is, and it's the neat thing about a founder is, is often the company was created around the founder's vision so that, that they've got a security in that their vision, whatever their initial big vision was, was successful. Right. And that makes them much more likely to have future visions that they're willing to back. Where if you get a professional CEO that's gone company to company, chances are in their prior jobs, they were never asked for a vision. Now they're CEO, they're being told they have to have one. And it reminds me a bit of Lou Gerstner when he took over IBM. People said, what, kept asking him what his vision was. And he had no vision. He didn't know right. enough about the technology to come up with one. And he was fairly honest about the fact that the whole vision thing wasn't important to him. And that was fine for fixing IBM, but it was really bad to try to take IBM forward. And so you kind of need that vision if you're going to craft a company and and, and take it into the future, because you have to have an eye. That vision is, you know, the destination you're ta- you're, you're trying to make it go. And if you and if, like Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you're probably not going to get there. So that so the uh, so in the end, that, it, Jensen's is one of those guys that that he's fascinating to talk to. I know him personally, and uh, he's just a lot of fun. He, he's one of a handful of CEOs that I just really love just hanging out with. Yeah, I love our CEO. Very similar, um, because I've been through the times where that have been tough. It's not that he didn't have a vision, but I mean, it's tough. And he wasn't always, uh, you know, when you're a human being trying to deal with tough situations, if you're in the marketplace a long time, you know, you're not always at your best. But I, to your point before, it's impossible to navigate somewhere if you don't have a fixed point of reference that you're trying to get to, because you might have to backtrack and, you know, take a different route yeah. harder or whatever. And, um, uh, but, you wrote this thing that I thought was really interesting and provocative that caught my imagination. And it was um, this idea of the 3D web. Right. C- can you talk about that? What does that mean? Well, it's called a number of things. Web 3.0, 3D web, metaverse. Uh, they're all different words for pretty much the same thing. The next iteration of the, uh, of the internet, which is, which is supposed to be much more virtual, um, uh, evolving into a, a separate world of, a separate earth, if you will, that you can go in and visit in a in a digital sense, uh, and and one that adopts to you as opposed to you adopting to it. I mean, something that probably wouldn't need a browser because you become the browser in that world. The the uh, it breaks one of the one of the big problems with technology historically, which is that the user had to learn how to use the technology, and as we move into this next age, the technology will be learning how to work with you. And that's going to create a very different dynamic, one with with a with a with a high degree of variability in terms of our individual experiences, because as the environment morphs to optimize who we are and we're all somewhat different, our experiences in, in that 3D web are going to be very different as well and, and increasingly optimized depending on how well we do the tools, which is going to be very, very have a wide range as well. But it's going to be increasingly optimized specifically for how we are at a particular a given point in time. And of course, that opens up a whole can of worms about, okay, how do, how do we evolve as an individual or a race? Um, what kind of impact is that going to have on overall decision-making? And, and, uh, and if much of the world we're viewing is, is um, artificial, hmm. what's that going to do to our decision-making uh, process? Will, will we end up 
you know, being married to an avatar, for instance, as opposed to a live person. We've certainly had a couple of experiments like that that didn't go particularly well in Asia. Right. But the, but the, uh, but the, we're at the we're at the very beginning of what is likely a much bigger technological change than we, when we first came up with the internet and took out the bulletin boards. When I thought when I think of Web 3.0, for some reason, I think of like a a blockchain internet where um, that'll be a part of it. Yeah, so it's more trans. Like, how do we do transaction? I guess I never really thought about it. Like, like the multiverse is 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 the internet, um, what, whatever that might look like. But as I read your article and I'm listening to you now, I I could see that happening. When you were talking about this interaction, um, I was just looking with dismay at my 401k. Um, it's one of the tools that I have. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't know yeah, it was a torture you don't device. Look at your four hundred one k is this 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 yeah, month. Yeah, no. I know, I know. But I, I so when I was in there, but you reminded me of this, and I've, um, and you've got these tools, and you can go through. I'm sure most people are familiar with this, but you can choose, you, you know, from its portfolio what you want, what your level of risk is, and when do you want to get in. You know, it gets these gives you these rudimentary tools, and when you're describing this, um, I it, for some reason it took me there. I'm imagining. Okay, I want to. Exp- I want the internet to react to me. This three D internet, but do am I going to have a slider? And how helpful is it going to be if I push my slider and say, "Man, I want it. I want to. Um, I want to secure. Uh, I want a vanilla. I want a. I want a low stress world." And what I have come to believe with this this tension in technology that. When human beings have to figure out how to get along with each other, the hard work of getting along with each other or the hard work of lifting weights to develop, you know, our bodies are made to work, whatever that means, a physical resistance, a intellectual stress. And if I could take my slider and slide it down to where I want a spouse that is essentially a Stepford wife or a Stepford husband, I want to, I want to. I want an experience that's this very vanilla, mellow, whatever. I don't know about in terms of um, maybe some people that sounds great. I don't know. But um, how does that help be. us flourish? Yeah, the, th- the thing is, is be careful what you want. Uh, the, the, I was on a, on a call this morning where I was referring back to the old Star Trek episode where Spock's girlfriend breaks up with him. And at the end, he, he he points out that sometimes it, wanting is a lot better than having. And and the uh, um, and, and I think that's the reality we're probably going to discover in the early days of the 3D web, um, the the metaverse. Is yeah, you can have whomever you want, um, but you're probably going to quickly find that whoever that that initial target person is going to be incredibly annoying over a very short period of time because a certain amount of diversity and conflict is important in a relationship and you and if you remove remove all of that suddenly it becomes boring and and uh and and not that and really not that interesting or 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 even engaging anymore Although for those people that have had fully submissive submissive spouses generally those marriages don't last very long yeah. uh, because that the uh the, the even though they don't admit it they actually like a, a little bit of conflict and disagreement and, and breadth in their relationships and by eliminating that, yeah, they're not arguing as much, but it's but the result is incredibly dull, and so that and so they end up cheating on the spouse, uh, assuming the spouse will put up with it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the relationship is destroyed as a result. Yeah, we have a. I've been married thirty five years. Uh, obviously, got married at twelve. 
Um, and uh, m- uh, my wife and I are, um, we come from very different experiences growing up. I met her when I was a airborne uh, kid in Georgia, but I grew up uh, primarily out West. And she's half Japanese, half Irish. I'm uh, Scots Irish German and like just not a lot of, she's just this gorgeous girl who was very kind to me. Uh, we knew each Sounds other. Sounds like for, we were both really lucky. Uh, Did you we get married in 87? I got married in 87. That's right. Yeah. I got married in 86. So it's yeah. by a year. Yeah. Well, congratulations. 87. We were married 12 years before we had kids. But I, even today we chuckle because we have a couple things. One, we have a sign in our house that says, you want to talk to the man in the house or the woman who runs the place? And that's very yeah, yeah. true. And the second is um, we don't have a lot in common. Like like the things, um, we have a few things in common. And of course, we've developed things over all these years. But I'm a hardcore, used to be video gamer, now board gamer, among other things. I love dirt bike racing and getting the mud. I love hiking, disc golf, um, deep technology, intellectual things. I love wading into politics and religion. And these she could care less. She's very artist, creative, mellow. Um, and yet I couldn't imagine spinning up a profile in my AI that fit that exactly. It probably could be great for an hour. Right. And then it would just go off the rails. I, I, I don't like heartache. I don't want betrayal. I don't want, you know, whatever, but like Robin Williams character in Goodwill Hunting says, you talked about, you know, I know my wife, you know, she farts in her sleep and she, you know, she has other things. And that's the secret stuff only I know about. So, no, and it is, it's, it's, it's the, it's the diversity in a relationship that often adds the, the long-term spice to it. Though I do know that a lot of relationships that were very diverse when people before retirement, when they do retire, they find they can't stand each other. Yeah. And then the really, then the marriage doesn't, doesn't survive retirement. So working through some of those issues is also important. But yeah. as we look at this 3d, 3d web stuff, uh, the part of what we're going to get away from is all those sliders you mentioned earlier. The, the, um, the amount of information that's being captured about each one of us should allow, in a, in a relatively short period of time, the service to give you not only what you think you want, but also give the option of, of what the AI thinks you want. And, and, uh, and that difference could be telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could end up with something much closer to, to a lasting relationship uh, with somebody that the AI thinks you want, because often we don't know what we want. Like I mentioned, but we were, I was up, up on a call the other day. We were talking about we were just dating in high school and, you know, chasing the the head cheerleader who I did date when I was right. in high school and I was a senior. And the, um, and the fact that, you know, everybody wanted wanted to date whoever the most popular woman was. And right. and for most of us that have done it, that was not a great experience. Right. So the, so the, so often, and particularly when we're young, we, we, what we want and what we should want are two very different things. And one of the things that an AI-driven uh, next generation's tool should do is delineate between those two things. And then based on experience with others, provide you with a better recommendation than, the, uh, than where your, your mind and, and the part of your body that shouldn't be thinking is directing you. Right. Well, Garth Brooks wrote it. Right, that great prophet. Uh, thank God for unanswered prayers in his song. Right. You know, he's like, "I wanted this, but I ended up with this." I'm curious. There has been since um, Tristan Harris published uh, or was participated in the social um, dilemma, and I don't want to pick on the big text too much, but it is. Um, 
I don't think any of the leaders are trying to, you know, in some Machiavellian way manipulate the world, but the algorithms run out there and say, hey, what keeps people's attention? How, how do we right. do that as we're experimenting through this? In your research, as you think about this, um, this this 3D world, and we've got an AI that we want to help enable us um, to to uh, to have the best experience possible as a human being. Right. H- how do we help them, or how are they going to help themselves, or what's the risk um, for them feeding us stuff that, on the one hand, serves one narrative, but maybe overall doesn't help us? And all I mean by that, when I'm thinking of the uh, social dilemma, was oh no, I get it. And the algorithms would say, hey, you're searching for diet stuff. Let me show you a thing on bulimia, which caught their attention, kept them on the app, but had the unintended consequence of um, extreme mental duress with a particular demographic, in this case, teenage girls. And so the algorithm wasn't evil. It wasn't wrong. Its job was, how do I keep their attention? Or how do I do this thing? Well, here's a way to do it. Or... We didn't go to the moon or we, you know, whatever. All these rabbit holes, all these conspiracies, all the the uh, the, the the louder stories of the mess. When we're thinking about technology now and enabling it to help us, ha- do you have any sort of reaction to that or experience with how do we help coach it to not lead us down these rabbit holes? Well, so that so it, as far as the capability of, of doing what you wanted to do, that we've got the issue is is the economic focus of the underlying tools and executive direction. Uh, the when you're tr- when you're focused almost exclusively on quarterly revenues uh, and how to maximize them, and then you're using that focus to drive your AI development, invariably those AIs are going to behave badly. Mm. Uh, the the uh, um, and that's probably our biggest danger going into this initial wave of artificial intelligence is, is that the focus, thanks to a large extent to hedge funds having way too much um, authority in, 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 um, in corporate uh, direction and governance, um, we're way too focused on quarterly returns. And, and if, we could, if we could just shift that to strategic relationships, then this problem would probably fix itself because then, it's, then, then you don't care as much about quarterly revenues you care about long-term engagement and you don't have long-term engagement if you screw people over. But short-term, over a quarter, you can screw people over day and night and maximize maximize revenues and, and you let the following quarters take care of themselves. And you may go out of business, but you don't you don't care at the moment because you're maximizing current revenue. So it's it's on one hand, it's it's suicidal uh, the way it is right now. And, and, um, and the, on the other, the only way to fix it really starts with getting the, the damn hedge fund managers out of governance and getting companies to think strategically again, and and if we can do that, then we then we can remove one of the great and very annoying um, uh, uh, focus areas for AIs, which which is um, you know instant gratification with regard to revenue, and to, and to hell with the strategic relationship of the individual. Somebody pointed out very credibly that we're leading to to an extension event for the for the race, and instead of trying to fix it, we're going hell bent for leather in the opposite way. While we're talking about fixing the problem, it's it's it's. It's beyond ironic. It's it's stupid, and and um, and that's all being funneled into the AIs we're creating, which means, hey, great, we're going to have AIs that can make decisions faster. But unless we fix that core decision element, that faster thing is going to get us going in the wrong direction faster, and that's not going to be that's not going to end well for us. You mean so you at the end there you're talking about climate change? How how is it going to? Um, I, I I guess I'm not tracking with how is AI well, bad well, decision making going to impact? 
because it shifts because because AIs as they get more capable and they're largely focused on changing um, our behavior. So the, right. the focus for AI right now is marketing and sales. Right. As applied to politics, that means AIs can convince you to vote in a way that would otherwise be, not be in your best interest. Mm. And when, and and they're and they're backed by the revenues from areas like petrochemical, where the money is right now, and clearly their risk from uh, from efforts to reduce the use of, of fossil fuels. And so and so people are manipulated into making decisions. And we're seeing the politics in the United States now. A lot of the efforts, you know. Of, Inflow, we fix inflation, we've got to pump more oil, we've got to get more gas out there, we have to lower gas prices, which is counterintuitive to try to get people to stop using gas. The, the, uh, we have to get off of the petrochemical stuff because it's just destroying the environment. In fact, the screwy thing is it's not even focused on making the petrochemical stuff safer and less damaging to the environment. It's, it's all focused on just getting us to use more of it, which is which is insane given what we know that's going on. Yet that's where the money is. And, and so that as long as the money stays on the wrong side of an argument, these tools that we're developing to manipulate people will be manipulating those people to do things that aren't in their best interest. And, and that's not a good use of AI. And at, and at scale, I mean, we talk a lot about, about the emergence of the super intelligence in AI and how that could wipe out the race. We can do it long, long before that just by having AIs convince us to do something we shouldn't be doing and have that turn out catastrophically bad. Do you think the ability, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some ability to influence, but it seems like at least in the circles that I run, people are getting really skeptical about what they're reading anyway. Yeah, or, it, or that... it is. The, the, the amount of believable fake news out there is overwhelming at the moment. And, the, mm. and, the, uh, and as we start to apply these artificial intelligences against that particular metric, so the, the fake news becomes even more believable, even better tailored to our, our own uh, view of the world, our, our frame of reference, if you will, it's going to be really hard for us to tell the difference between what's true and what's not, mm-hmm. and and that's not good. The the uh, the Achilles heel to artificial intelligence is biased information, mm. either 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 too late too too little or or corrupted. With, with both of them resulting in an AI that that uh, is no longer viable. It's not it's not making good decisions. It's not providing good advice. It's been corrupted at its heart, and that and that's why a lot of companies, IBM, probably the leader in this. Uh, are arguing very heavily for for uh, all heavily heavily and enforced rules with regard to AI ethics. Yeah, a conversation I want to have um, not not today, but in the future with um, I cannot remember his name, but he's got a really interesting series on the geopolitics of AI and um, how, how whether whether it's in the corporate world or it is the nation state or whatever like this there is some really troubling human beings being human beings um yeah. and the speed at which these tools can operate and influence that there's uh, there's work to be done in the uh in that geopolitical ai world that we don't to your point earlier we talk a lot about how this can enhance a particular technology or medical or healthcare or make something more efficient um, in these very narrow, specific ways, or the risk, as you were just talking about, there's the risk in media or in um, uh, uh, influencers, as my kids call them, the content influencers. But um, in fact, somebody was just telling, I was listening to, uh, I can't remember who exactly, but they were talking about, you know, firms more and more are not necessarily getting a subject matter expert in a particular area. They're trying to get a content influencer because they're, it's just like watching fish in the ocean. They're just trying to get a shiny light over here and they all swim over there. And we've trained, not so much for those of us that are, 
um, well, uh, older, more experienced, but certainly there's generations uh, or a generation out there that's very influenced by um, content influencers. And, they, and by the time they can unwind something, they, uh, they've already swum and gone all the way over here and it's caused a, a challenge. So are, are you optimistic that we're going to be able to, I thought this is going to be a very optimistic part of the conversation. Are you optimistic that uh, we're going to be able to manage through this AI? Uh, no, um, I've got my doubts. The, 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 as I said, the, the, the core issue is the, is the money's on the wrong side of this. The, the, uh, you want the money on the side that, that talks to having AIs that have high integrity, that, that their predominant focus is on your well-being, uh, not the money being focused on manipulating you into doing something that you otherwise wouldn't do. And that extends from, you know, buying stuff to, to, uh, to how you vote. And, that, and that separation, that taking people away from being their best selves mm. is problematic. It, it's, a, it's a corrupt, it, the way the industry is focused right now um, it, it's a corrupting influence, and at a time we we really can ill afford more corrupting influences. We we need people to make better informed the decisions, the, and AIs can help them do that. Uh, that sadly is not where the industry is focused at this moment. It's largely focused on the marketing and sales side, um, which is a bad place to be initially. When you say industry, you mean the AI industry, tech, tech industry, tech industry. Okay. Um, I was just I mean, talking. I mean, that's what the customers want to focus. It's not. It's not like they're decided to take over the world and do bad shit. Right. It's the customers see see the revenue side of the equation as being the most important uh, to to accelerate. But but the the issue with that is is the revenue side doesn't care that much about integrity, and we need high integrity with the initial tools. Otherwise, we're corrupting the entire set. Mm. We have the risk of corrupting the entire set. Right. Well. Um, thanks, Debbie Downer. Uh, I came into this super uh, optimistic. I'm gonna I'm gonna retain my optimism. I'm gonna I'm gonna That's say fair. we're gonna f- in in spite of the uh, well, argument. Let's be clear: they're companies that are focused on doing this right. I, I mentioned right. IBM and their heavy focus on ethics. They've ex- they've actually ex- exited from markets, uh, for instance, in facial recognition, where they thought it was going the wrong way. They've said we're out. Right. Um, that's and I, that's what I think companies should do: is that they should look at their opportunities. And if it's an opportunity that is fundamentally against their ethical core, they should exit. We mentioned NVIDIA. NVIDIA is not, to my knowledge, involved in any of the stuff that I view as unethical. Right. They're mostly focused on improving farming, uh, medical work, um, automotive, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the manipulation stuff. They're just not all that big. And even though their tools could be used that way, but it's not, it's not, the, it's not the stuff that they promote. Right. So, the, so the, the emergence of these ethical core companies are an offset and the, and um, and companies like you know Dell and Lenovo and I mean the the big tier tier ones are for the most part are really trying hard to do what's right and the and the issue I've got is the momentum on the buy side uh, which tends to drive behavior through companies is is on the wrong side and it's and it's going to create problems for us before we're done here I, there's no doubt in my mind we're eventually going to have to heavy regulate this area and government isn't prepared at all to regulate this. Uh, the, right. The, uh, and right now, they undoubtedly do more harm than good as a result. So, the, so you don't want regulation when the government doesn't know what they're doing because all they all they do is, I mean, they can make things and they will make things worse. Right. Uh, but but we we need intelligent regulation here. And um, and sadly, with governments, intelligent regulation tends to be an oxymoron. Right, and it's usually hard one. We we tend to overcorrect 
correct, right? There's no, there's nothing. We tend tend to not do anything for an extended period of time. And then we overcorrect without understanding the problem. And, and so invariably the end result is not better. Right. It, it's, it's, um, when it, when it ends up planning out, if it ends up planning out, it, generally works okay. Somebody was telling me the other day, well, we just need to get rid of regulation. I said, would you go into a house that had not, didn't have building inspectors and code and reg, come on. Uh, At the same time, I tried to, uh, I didn't try, we added a, um, oh, we did a kitchen thing. I can't remember what, but I had to go back through my house and change wiring and a bunch of things. You know, well, if you're going to do that, you've got to go do all of these other things. And intellectually, I know they're right, but my pocketbook and my annoyance was irritated with having to update all these life safety and a whole bunch of other things. So let let me ask you this, because we could spend a whole bunch of time in that area, and it's probably not going to be much fun. You talked about the 3D web browser, a future web browser. I I was... What's your experience with that, and can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that? Well, so that so in 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 reality, as we go into the into the three D web browser, as the three D web advances, the 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 browser per se will be you. I mean, it's it's um there it's you're going to be placed in a, in an artificial environment, whether initially with a headset like the new Pro headset that uh, Facebook just released, mm-hmm. or in an immersion tank, which is probably the the near term eventual place that you'll drop into the metaverse so you actually can experience it like a real place and then eventually of course you'll have some type of brain uh interface something that that musk and others are working on i think musk is on the wrong path because he's using metal instead of an organic interface mm. uh, we can cover that later but the, but the but in the end it's it's tying you physically into this artificial environment so you feel the artificial environment as if it's the real one so you can't even at some future point uh tell whether you're in a metaverse uh, instance or in the real world, and that and so that that browser, if you will, that equipment that's causing you to interface, will start off being a largely hardware based and and as a layer between your physical extremities, eyes, mouth, nose, etc., and then eventually be something that is tied directly into your brainstem and and um, and bypasses all that stuff to create a much higher level of of um, of reality. So it's it's a uh, it, and and the, the rather than you having to learn a browser, um, the environment will alter itself to learn how to interface with you. So whatever your unique uh, physical and mental differences are, it will learn and adopt to them. And so it's part of the end game for these AI driven systems that adopt to you as opposed to forcing you to adopt to them. But I, I don't think I can go far enough to say how big a game changer that will be. Well, I yeah, for sure it would. Um, well, for one, way- you mean after, we may no longer need coders. Uh, the the, uh, the the we're already heavily under the no code um, um, vector, and the and the idea of being able to just to describe what you want and then have applications and capabilities developed automatically on the fly, uh, based on your needs, and increasingly uh, founded on uh, a breadth of experience that is global in scope. Um, is is also going to be a major a major game changer. The the uh, your computer scientists aren't going to go away for a while because you'll still need the theory behind a lot of this stuff. But but your baseline coders, uh, we're running up to. I mean they're 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 on a short list along with the folks that make French fries of jobs that just won't be around anymore. Joel Beasley is the host of a podcast called Modern CTO. Really cool young guy. Really interesting yeah. guy. His background is um, coding. 
And he had a conversation recently with somebody talking about this thing. So he usually, in not all, but a lot of his guests are CTOs, CIOs, heavy programming background, but everybody from NASA, Google, whoever been on his program. And one of the things they've talked about that is that is the um, uh, that is a stop on the way to paradise, coding paradise, which is I tell the system, the problem I'm trying to solve, and it goes out and it solves it. I don't have to code it. I just have to articulate back if it solved the problem. And then once it solves it initially, it will continue to go back in this journey uh, of nirvana that they talk about and get its machines to in the background. So I've solved the problem. You're working on it. But they usually, they have this belief that we can get it better either right. with emerging tools or well, iterate or whatever. And you don't even have to tell it to iterate. It'll just go iterate and it'll tell the other machines and uh, whether it, it it learns because other people are solving similar problems and somebody learns how to, to do accomplish similar things or they can take a snippet from it or whatever. And so they're describing this world on the one hand that looks re- sounds really cool. On the other hand, besides job displacement um, – what happens when they decide they don't need these carbon-based life forms? But that's another, uh, you know. Well, uh, and, and and to put it to point, at Microsoft Ignite last week, uh, Microsoft showcased a tool that did, would do exactly that. You tell it what to do, it would create a piece of code, and then it would automatically iterate to, to optimize the code. So it'd say, go roll through once, run it. Yeah, it's not efficient enough. Roll through it again, make parameter, and all automatically and to, until it was optimized against whatever was state was the stated goal was. And so you not only get faster code, better code, but but it's code that a human hasn't created at all. It was all machine created. Um, now that does mean that while coders as we know them uh, may not be needed. On the other hand, being able to translate what somebody wants at least initially. Uh, into a description, much like when you're on the web today, you need to know Brulean logic if, if if you really want to search well. Right. Um, the uh, the skills to be able to translate a little bit initially will be important. Though, as I mentioned, as the AIs get more capable, they will learn that skill themselves, and even that part of it will go away. You won't need the translators because it'll be built into the built into the into the tool. And at which point, then the people that want the tool will be dictating the tool, and you and a lot of the coding jobs. Uh, will evaporate much like what we're seeing with Dali uh, and art. We saw the one one guy just entered a contest and took first place with a Dali picture, which which he couldn't paint to save his life. And it, and it's a decent shot if you haven't seen it. Um, but he created this great painting, uh, all computer generated, based based on his description. So his imagination to create the product is, is the picture was something that probably will be sustaining for a while as long as people remain the audience. Right. Uh, but the uh, but the the need to actually learn how to paint not so much. I was going to mention Dolly um, when you were talking, and so I, it's a great segue in that, at least in this piece of the conversation, because when I've experimented with it, um, one I just let my imagination run wild. I've got four lizard riding poker players in the desert, and you know whatever, and and so you know make me something. And and do it from this lens perspective, and do it modern art. Do it in uh, you know relief, like the three or four different sort of art styles and whatever. And every now and then, I can't remember it now, but a buddy of mine just shared um, a thing that he did in Dolly. We were playing a board game, 
And uh -huh. while we were playing the board game, waiting for his turn, he did this thing in Dali. And we all paused because it was such an intriguing picture. But then we said, what if you could do whatever? And he nuanced telling it the instructions, giving it more sure. instruction, nuanced the um, lighting, nuanced the three or four elements. And when it was done, I was like, okay, now I got to figure out how to print that in a way I can put it on my wall because it evoked such emotion from me. Yeah, you can create some amazing stuff with the tool and, and recognize the tool's rudimentary now. I mean, we're at the beginning of this tool and it's doing some amazing stuff. Imagine yeah. what it's going to be like five years from now. Yeah. Well, this takes me back to where we were kind of talking about imagining um, sort of the 3D web or the next generation web. If I if I take yeah. it out of my visual and uh, coming out of COVID, going through COVID and coming out of COVID, especially since I have 19, 21, and 23-year-old daughters and their friends, friend groups, and my siblings' children or their grandchildren, um, there is a there is a mental health phenomenon that's exasperated by a number of things, not the least of which is um, isolation and uh, technology um, in certain circumstances and its impact and people in isolation. But one of the things that I've also seen the rise of is um, these tools. It's almost an app for a counselor. Now, I'm not trying to say it's a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but oh, there is a, a conversation using conversational AI. Yeah. So they can, and, and, and it will ask them, Hey, how are you feeling today? You know what? I'm, uh, I'm doing okay. I'm a little melancholy and I'm all right. What do you, what do you mean by that? And it, and it's not a gimmick. Like it's, I, I use a tool for, um, meditation in my faith tradition. And it says, think about these things and, you know, contemplate these things. And so I get kind of still, and it helps to guide sort of my prayer time and my thinking and whatever. And you can apply that in any in any sort of meditative way. But in this particular case, these apps are, um, they're having a dialogue with this person. Um, I'm thinking of specifically, I don't want to say their name or their circumstance, but they said it really helped. Be it, wasn't a, it wasn't in place of, it was in, in addition to the medicine and the real help, but it helped me to have a conversation when, um, mostly when I was melancholy and I could talk to this tool. It learned me over time imperfectly, but it learned some of me. Hey, what are you thinking about that? How, how, how is this making you feel? And in some cases said, you know, maybe you should talk to fill in the counselor's name here about that. And I'm imagining at some point as these things learn us and are tied to our, um, you know, physio physiological reaction and all this other stuff, if it can tell biologically and emotionally and just from how we're interacting with the world that maybe we're not on a high, maybe we're on a, you know, we're in a, um, before we really um, turn a corner into real melancholy, it can offer an encouraging word or come alongside and say, hey, that's a really good job, or just, you know, whatever, just have this interaction with us. I could see a tool as we're talking, kind of developing this idea that could um, that could offer words of encouragement. Maybe that's just the optimist in me, but it is a, it's a possible no, play. Certainly, certainly to talk, I mean, and not just words of encouragement, give you like a red flag saying, hey, you're, 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 that joke you're about to tell, you may not want to tell that unless you're planning on, on retiring early. The, right. The, the, that combination of, hey, you know, that was really nice giving you that positive feedback. And that other right. said, yeah, like, stop, take a breath. That joke you're about to tell, 
right. is probably a, a termination event and, not, right. and, and by no means a, a good one. So the, right. so the, uh, so the, the, that having that, that digital assistant, that true AI digital assistant on your shoulder, that's both helping you make decisions and helping you avoid making mistakes. That'll be a huge tool once once it fully emerges. Um, uh, certainly in the in the again using I, I, IBM Watson because they were the ones that I first had a prototype that seemed to work. Um, but that idea of having something that goes well beyond you know Siri, Cortana, and OK Google and actually becomes a true AI digital assistant, that's going to be a game changer as well. A good friend of mine, I was asking him to help me prepare for a talk in Austin not long ago, mm. and. We're talking about the multiverse, and he said, "I I want you to shift from gaming or whatever." And he said, "Imagine, imagine a crime scene, I said, yeah. okay, and you're a detective, and you show up, and you have this conversation with the with the young cop who's there on the scene, and they kind of give you the fact, you know, here's what happened as we understand it. This is when we think it happened. Here's sort of the circumstances, and then and then they leave, and then you take your your glasses and you flip them on, you hit the button, and." It's more of an augmented situation, and and you're using this tool that's uh, evaluating the scene, and um, and it's tied into uh, maybe a, an AI backend or or uploading uh, things that it sees, so it can load pattern recognition to the FBI or uh, blood pattern stuff or whatever to the local crime lab. Like it's so you're as you're doing your job and you're doing these other things. But one of the things I thought that was really interesting was, so now you're interviewing people just like we're to having a conversation and you've got sure. this tool that's helping you evaluate. Um, do they sound truthful? Does their, did their biometrics match their conversation? Um, am, am, am I or able to has access to, to all the data of, of whatever they've said publicly uh, sure. or written publicly? And as soon as they say something that's inconsistent with that, it gives you a red flag and say, hey, by the way, despite the fact that this guy, we'll call him a politician, is saying blah, blah, blah. You know, just a week ago, he wrote blah, 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 which means right. probably not being all that honest. So that so the. So yeah, a combination of looking looking at biometrics um, and being much better at it than, right. than current lie detectors, and uh, uh, and also looking at the history, the written history of an individual to look for inconsistencies. Yeah, we could get the equivalent of a of a very good lie detector um, he, uh, at the very least at the end of this. One of the things he pointed out, which I love, but it, but I'm also kind of like getting fatigued about the possibility of the surveillance state. Was he said, hey. you know, hey, were you in that area last night when this happened? Oh no, I wasn't. Well, my tool just looked at social media, yeah. and it said you're at the club, and your phone reported that it was at this tower, and your car said it was charging at that station all within three blocks of this whatever, and that's Pretty real sure time. You were there. Pretty Something, your devices were there. I don't know where you were, but your devices were there um, that were taking pictures and using your voice and you know doing this other stuff. And so... Um, you know the whole of this coming together, uh, and there's a lot for us to think about. Uh, maybe another talk, another day. How good is that, and what's the implication to privacy and security and safety? And it's like a lot of things. You know, it's sort of a um, opportunities for great and risk. Uh, but it is, in your opinion, as you've written, look, I really think this is coming, and it's coming soon and we're going to interact with the world like this and this is what the future of the internet's going to look like yeah. well i honestly i think the focus on privacy is uh is ill-conceived that that those horses have already left the barn yeah uh, 
now it's, the focus should be on making sure people don't use this information uh, illegally or in a harmful way against us. Uh, the the uh, because uh, we might be able to address that problem now, but the privacy thing is long gone. As soon as we adopted social media, um, we pretty much gave up our, our privacy rights, and, and it just seems very unlikely to me that's ever going to get fixed. So the so the so recognizing what the exposure is, if everybody kind of knows or has the ability to, to know about what it is you're doing, then maybe we need to be a little bit more conscious of the stuff that we shouldn't be doing, and maybe stop doing it. The the uh, the other issue we've got to recognize is just because it's not being monitored now doesn't mean it's not going to be picked up later. And, and certainly we've seen a number of, of, of times where a politician gets hung up for something that they thought was perfectly right to say back in 2008 is, and is now bur burning their butts in 2022. Right. So recognize that we not only need to think about what we're saying, <clears throat> but we need to see think about how it's going to be perceived in the future. Uh, the, the, uh, and so, so, so there are whole categories of, of uh, humor topics that most of us that are floating around in, in or ever plan to be in the public eye should likely avoid uh, because the the rules are in flux, and um, and what you say now could be held against you when the rules change in the future. It's unfortunate. You could argue right. it shouldn't be that way, but arguing against reality doesn't seem to change reality's mind one little bit. So that yeah. so that that's the, that's the problem we're facing. There is no fix for it other than changing our own behavior. Could you see George Carlin if somebody came to him in 1968 and said, "Hey, don't joke about these things," I, or Richard Pryor or Lenny Bruce or Phil, any sort of the avant-garde. Uh, let's be clear: as long as they didn't go into politics, they might still be all right. Right. Uh, but 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 now but now let's say they become a. Can we remember the, the what's his name out of um, out of Saturday Night Live? That was joking around and, and then got kicked out of the Senate because he was you know making jokes about oh, about Al uh, Franken. Was it Al Franken? Yeah, Al Franken. Yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, and really, he did not. He didn't. He did, she was asleep. He was just joking around and, right. and like like he always did. He did no harm. Right. No, nobody was damaged during that that particular event, but he right. still lost his job. And the yeah. and the uh, and so you can complain about you can complain about how far uh, unfair it is, or you can just not do that stuff and keep your job. And I and I think the latter path is probably going to be the better one long term. It's just you know uh, that do you re I mean do you really need to tell that joke? It, it's a uh, it, it off, often the uh, the things that they get you are things that you just kind of weren't thinking and you threw it out there and that's what bites you in the butt 10 years in the future. So it's it's a case of really thinking through your behavior and what it is you want to do. You want to be a comedian the rest of your life and you're sure about that? Hey, go for it. The, right. the, uh, but if you're thinking, hey, I might want to get in politics 10 years from now, then maybe you're going to have to get, get you have to gauge your behavior now against that future goal. Otherwise, you're going to may, may, may find that future goal unachievable. Or at least... Unfortunate where politics comes in a role in the public forum, you know, if I want to be a leader within an organization and I, and I have to um, solicit the board's confidence, uh, my peers' confidence, I, I, I don't mean a, a junior level, even maybe up into a junior VP, but once you start advancing in larger public organizations, certainly to an executive VP and higher, there is a public persona view and more and more of these tools that we've been talking about, they're scrubbing social media. I keep trying to tell my children, look, it's forever. I don't, I don't care if you delete it from your post. It's been cached and recorded somewhere. I, somebody was, uh, I, I, I want to say it was a John Stossel was interviewing. I think it was Snowden, whoever. And I, I have no way to verify if this is true or not. But one of the things that he said in this interview was um, one of the three-letter agencies 
it is recording, whether it's taking action or doing anything, it's, t- it's recording all phone conversations on certain providers. Yeah, NSA providers. has been doing that for a while. They've got that central repository in the middle of the country that's been capturing stuff. The good news is they can't figure it. They, last I checked, they can't figure out how to parse or search it, right. but, they, but they're certainly capturing it. And, the, and, the, uh, and they'll fix the search and, and parsing problem. So, the, so the, 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 for a lot of folks, I, I think they're going to find, particularly kids, um, they're going to find the stuff that they're doing now is going to come back and bite them in the butt when they decide to have a have a career later on because it's going to come up in their background checks and right. the and the uh, and background checks are increasingly digital so the so they may not I mean the thing is you go and you apply for your dream job and you don't get it nobody bothers to tell you why because they don't they want to get sued right. um, and and it and it may turn out it was something and the sad thing is you may never know that in fact it could even be false information and right. and you. You may not know it, which goes back to my original premise that assuring right now the priority should be assuring these databases um, are, are ethical and are corrupted because that regardless, they're going to be affecting our lives in the future. And it would be problematic if, the, if you know, we're not getting jobs, not because of something we did do, but because of, of some piece of information that was misrecorded. Right. Are, are there organizations um, that are... Uh that are out there right now that are really uh, in terms of making the 3d um, world come to life, this next generation world come to life, obviously meta and the metaverse, Microsoft um, from an enterprise perspective. Well, NVIDIA um, is probably the better one to use as an example okay. because there, Can there's you... his applied metaverse. BMW is already as an example has already used that to build the factory. NVIDIA used it to build their, uh, their latest headquarters buildings as well. Um, and the um, and so in terms of practical applications of the metaverse, I think it's kind of starts and ends with NVIDIA at the moment. But uh, but I would look at NVIDIA as the one that's that's using the metaverse as far as practical applications. With the biggest applications being autonomous driving, and the biggest coming application being Earth Two, which could have a lot to do with whether we ever get our arms around uh, global climate change. Mm. So have you got to experience, um, other than just watching a, a video on it, have you got to experience NVIDIA's uh, tool? On a, yeah, on and off. The, the, yeah. I haven't done it with a full-on headset, but the, but the, but certainly been on premise and um, and seen what it is they're developing and, and looking at the the training modules for autonomous cars and robotics, right? Um, and how they're how they're being advanced. And and really, if, if right right now the best use for the metaverse. Or things like digital twins um, and way and ways to anticipate and correct problems before they enter the real world. And when you're talking about people interacting with robots, look at that robot Optimus that Elon Musk created, which which looks way the hell too much like the Terminator to me, and could well be if he's not <laughs> properly trained. Um, the um, you you need you need to do a lot of work in simulation so that the people you kill are virtual. Right. Or killer, or, or or maim, or virtual, and not real, um, right. and the uh, and that's a critical part now of autonomous cars coming to market. They'll have millions of hours of virtual training that goes on top of the thousands of hours of real world training they'll get, which will make them far safer than they otherwise would have been. Um, I have I hosted an architect um, last year, in fact, a number of architects, um, and where they're really excited in this ancient uh, industry is I don't know that they would use the word multiverse, but that's how we're applying it here. The I the and ability metaverse, multi, multiverse is different. Uh, yeah, sorry, uh, metaverse. Sorry. Or uh, but but be able to come into a virtual reality, a real time virtual reality environment, and with um, a, a, you know world class graphics, right. 
right. be able to manipulate. So, for example, one example that he gave was: so we've got this kitchen made, and it's and it's not this wire frame environment. Oh. It is an elegant, beautiful environment, and I'm able to adjust what the lighting looks like. But most importantly, was his chef came in and said, "Okay, I'm at the grill." Now I want to move, not clunky, not a robot, but fluidly. I want to move to, how am I going to get this to the server? How am I going to move this to the prep area? How am I going to move? And as they turned and they were doing some of that, they're like, whoa, this counter's in the way. This cabinet's too low, this whatever. And they were able to manipulate their environment and it works, optimize it, make it more efficient. And it's so, it was so um, powerful when they built the environment, the physical world, and it worked exactly the way they imagined From th- to the lighting, not just the lighting in there, but the way that the sun moved across the restaurant and they were able to change a couple things and anticipate it. And it's far cheaper than if, than if, if what typically would have happened is they would have built it first, then the chef would have come in and say, yeah, this is working. We need, to, we need to rip this out and change it. We need to change, we need to completely right. rethink this. Uh, maybe we have to just take go back to, to bare studs and start over again. You can do all of that in the virtual world for a fraction of the cost of what it would cost you to do it in, the, in the real world. And then when you finally build it, you no know, change orders. And if you've ever, and you mentioned you, you did a remodel on your kitchen, yeah. what kills you on a remodel are change orders. So that, yeah. they, the, the contractor bids against what it is you initially wanted to do. And then anything you change after that. Um, it is a significant kicker to the to the result. In fact, the remodel we did on this house was initially budget, budgeted at two hundred fifty thousand dollars. We were a million dollars over that because of all the changes we made once we started. By the way, I should point out in, in my own defense that I said we should have done we should have rendered the house virtually first. Yeah, and 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 my spouse said, yeah, no, we don't need to do that. I so think the, it was so the, the, so the uh, but but to be fair, the technology was fairly rudimentary when I wanted to do it. So the so the uh, so in the end. Uh, anybody that's doing a, a remodel should really think through creating a, a virtual um, uh, image of the of what it is they, they they've got and what it is they want to do, and do all their changes in the virtual image uh, before they engage the contractor. And that way, they'll particularly catch a contractor that 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 low bid in order to get the deal, knowing that change orders are going to make their profit. Right. Uh, the um, because they won't be getting those change orders. Yeah, we're here in the data center space. We are huge fans of digital twins. Oh yeah. Um, in in building everything, and um, it's fantastic. particularly helpful for maintenance. Uh, in in it's it, in pretty much every way, it is benefiting yeah. us. I'm going back to your. So I started to get triggered until you made me laugh about your budget overruns. I started to get triggered thinking about my kitchen. Uh, even today, when I look at it and. This thing's not quite exactly aligned with that thing, but I wouldn't pay the difference. I think the case of yours, though, Robert, was you added the holodeck and the helipad, and I don't think oh, those were in the close. original. I had, I added, we added three secret rooms. Um, one of them a dragon room, a wine vault. Um, there wasn't a wall, surface, roof, or floor we didn't take or or, or change. The fireplaces in the house went from traditional to being these these uh, circular things there are only 10 of them built in the world we've got two of them yeah uh, the uh, so yeah we got we got way the hell carried away with crazy shit but the, but 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 it would still have been quite a bit cheaper if we'd done all of that while the house was still in planning as opposed to seeing the initial run and going oh wow a secret room would look really cool here and how about if we do this and that meant a lot of the stuff that had been done had to be undone and then redone which which is really where the expense came from um, had we had the initial plan as complete as the final plan was, 
we would have at least uh, had saved half the money we spent, if not more. Did with you the same result? Did you decide on the secret room and the dragon room after you sampled the wine room? Was there an order of things? Well, that, that, we went, four we went with pinots the wine in first. So the way it happened is we, we came up with the idea for the wine cellar, which is my wife's room. And so she uh -huh. got to design that. But there's a, there's an entry room to the wine cellar that also had to be built to, co to connect the house to the wine cellar. Because the wine cellar was a, was a reconstruction of what had been a storage area underneath the front stairs. And there was no way to get into that from the house. Mm. So there needed to be a connecting room to go between the two. And that became my dragon room. So yeah. the... So the uh, so that was a that was a lot of fun because you walk into kind of a Game of Thrones thing with dragon lamps, dragon swords, and pictures yeah. that change as you walk by them, and a dragon phone where the dragon will talk to you. It's we we kind of went. We are fans. I think we're both fans of the concept and the potential of electric vehicles, not just electric sure. cars, electric vehicles in. Um, Almost every form I could think of. And and for me, part of it is, just full disclosure, how wonderful would it be if I didn't have an, um, a gas station right up the street? And just in the most practical way, it occupies space. There's fuel in the ground that could be a biohazard if we don't take care of it correctly, if we have to remove it. I mean, truly, I mean this with no... Um, guile or or political agenda or whatever like if it were if i had the ability to have the same driving experience or or range of freedom that i have and i can just from a convenience sake no other reason other convenience sake just charge my car up at home and do what i want to do and not have these other things populating the area and the trucks that have all the fuel moving around like that would be wonderful however we could accomplish that and so I know we're both supporters of that, um, or, or of the idea, the potentiality. I have a number of friends here in the East, Southeast, when uh, we had the pipeline challenge uh, with the ransomware. Some of my neighbors that have Teslas and other either hybrid or fully electric vehicles were driving around no problem. And uh, we were being much more uh, guarded because I've got a big heavy-duty truck and I've got kids in uh, uh, fossil fuel, non-electric vehicles. However, you've got this really interesting thing that you pose, and you're not the only one. A number of people have talked about this. Are we fully ready for the population of the United States to go to an electric vehicle? Not to be in favor of it. You make that point, and I am 100% agreement with you. But let's just be real. One of the things I love about um, the way you write is, look, even if I, my heart is for something, I also have to bring my intellectual um, all of me to the conversation. And can we do it all now? Not that we ultimately get there, but can we do it all now? So you've got this really interesting article about we're probably not yet ready to be fully electric vehicle. Can you help us to understand what you mean by that and why do you well, mean so that? Well, it's, so it's all about loading. So, so we have background. For a period of time, I was the top battery analyst for the, for the world, only because the company I worked for acquired um, the company that was the company that covered batteries for the world. And then we fired all the other analysts and I became the guy. So the, so the, so one of my job enlargement projects, I guess, because I remained <laughs> contained all right. my, my original responsibilities as well. But, the, but the, uh, but what we're making up for now is a couple of things. One is battery technology stalled from between about 1920 
to around the <laughs> mid 1980s. And then it started to advance again pretty well in the 1990s when personal technology came forward and we needed to fix a problem. But up to then, lead acid was just fine with, with some, some, some other formulations for you know, AAA batteries and some of the other stuff that we were okay. It's a good enough is, is, a, is a real problem when you're trying to do advancement because then, then nobody wants to spend for R&D. So part of the issue is our battery technology is nowhere near where it should have been had we maintained development. Now, the other problem is, is right now the electrical capacity of the grid is based on what it is we have or what it is we had when that capacity was created. And, and electric cars pull a lot of power. And, they, and that, that what's even worse is they tend to pull it at the same time. So people come home from work, they, they plug in around the same time, and now they're, they're going to try to fast charge their callers uh, at the same time, and we don't have enough capacity. The, the, uh, the sense was that in a given neighborhood, uh, somewhere around four or five houses uh, on a transformer, if they, if they all plug in and charge at once, that transformer is going to nuke. It, it's going to expand. Have you ever seen a transformer go up? And they do go up. We've had several right. go up here now over the last few months. And, and it not only are you out, but they do, they do wake you up when they explode. And when I was in San Jose, we had them going off all the time because a lot of Teslas there. Right. So, the, so, the, uh, so you, you, the, the right way to have done this was to increase the electrical capacity uh, on the grid first and then, and then go to electric cars. The, uh, another way to deal with that is to assure the high connectivity between people that are putting solar power on their homes and those who are getting electric cars. Now, be aware there, there is a high... A relationship, particularly with Tesla drivers and solar on homes, which has mitigated a problem we would have already had by now if that hadn't been the case. Mm. So, so it is mitigatable. Uh, right now, I think it's more likely we'll mitigate it with solar uh, than it is going to be increasing grid capacity, only because when you increase grid capacity, you, it's expensive. You, you've got to increase the, the wiring to the, to the transformers, increase the transformers. When I first got my electric car, I wanted to go to a level three charger which meant changing my service from a 250 service to a 450 service. Mm -hmm. And then they walked me through the $200,000 I was going to have to spend to do that, which included upgrading the transformer for my neighborhood and pulling new wire, which made no sense whatsoever. We right. just, there's, I mean, there's just no way we're going to drop level three chargers in the homes. Uh, so I, but I live just fine on my level two. And the, and the, uh, um, and so the end result is, is, is we've got this problem we're kind of skating around. We do have the capability of correcting it by assuring uh, uh, that, that the incentives that are driving people to get electric cars are equally focused on getting them to put on solar on their home to keep the grid loading down. Mm -hmm. uh, and also recognizing they're probably going to have to put in batteries as well, because when they come home from work, no sun, no solar, so that you're still going to have that load problem with, with the battery cars, unless they've got batteries in the house that are handling that load. And so you're pulling from those batteries as opposed to pulling from the grid. And so that, and so we can do it, but even on those homes that have a lot of solar, they're not because they didn't put in the batteries. They're, they're not really set up to mitigate the problem. And, and, it, and, it, and until we actually mitigate this, we're running a pretty good risk of having a bunch of transformers go nuclear. I mean, right. nuclear is an aphorism, just blow right. up. Right. Uh, the, the, uh, um, and um, and we, we do we we do need to stop avoiding this problem and start looking at it. At the very least we need to be looking at transformer loading when we're putting in the chargers and say hey maybe that guy doesn't get a transformer in his house because we're not set up to replace this this transformer on the street quite yet right especially with supply chain and other challenges we I was talking to a power guy so this is interesting conversation for me for a variety of reasons one. My neighbor and I have been talking long before um, 
the conflict in Eastern Europe flared up. But it's this idea of energy independence, strange bedfellows. He and I would never have talked before about solar or whatever. There's a, for whatever reason, without getting into the biases that we have as human beings, but like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not worried about that. But as time went on and we've been impacted where we live in um, uh, Georgia, Northeast Atlanta, where we get ice on occasion, we get these other things, not nearly as much as other parts of the country, but we have infrastructure failure on occasion. Yeah, And so we're, we are enamored of this idea of getting energy independence where we're taking care of our own energy and in an emergency, we go to the grid instead of the opposite. Like how, right. how does that work? And, um, and then I had on probably a year and a half ago, a guy named uh, Professor Donald Sadaway out of MIT and his, one of the, the things that his team has invented and they have taken a market or they're taking a market are, um, they call metal batteries, liquid metal batteries. And he said, look, green energy is not real. It should be real, but it's not real if you don't have grid-level storage. Right. Because um, in particular with solar and wind, yeah. and, be, uh, and because it may, you know, right now, just speaking about the facts, the, the grid, fossil fuel, nuclear, whatever, as we have a requirement, they spin up or spin down to meet the load Necessary. If we're not talking about carbon output or any of that stuff, just how does the grid work? It works essentially like this. Um, whereas um, it, it tries not to produce too much, you know, because that's just waste. Um, that's what we try to do. It doesn't work perfectly, but that's what we try to do. Whereas if when you yeah. have these green, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, without storage, it's very it's very difficult to manage this stuff very well. And the and the problem we're discovering with electric cars right now is typically at night. That's when a lot of the maintenance was done. But now with electric cars charging, loads are staying up really right. high, so they can't do maintenance. They're keeping the, they're keeping the plant spinning, and that means it's much more likely one's going to fail catastrophically because they can't do the preventative maintenance at night anymore. And right. then the overflow plants tend to be the least screen. They're the oil fired coal fired plants, and those have to keep spun up because we're using more electricity than we did before. And so that means the power isn't all that green because right. even in areas where you've got hyd- uh, hydroelectric power or nuclear power, that you're pushing over the capacity of those, those uh, support structures and dropping into, into generating plants that are not clean at all right. because they've got to keep the grid populated. You're, you're just, we're just consuming too much right now for a grid that wasn't designed for that level of consumption. Um, and he says similar things. One of the things that they're really interested in, he said, you know, so we're, while we're on our way to making grid level, and I, as we're in, from a research perspective, whether his product is the right product, whatever, he just said from a goal perspective, it's got to be safe to operate. It cannot be unsafe. You know, you get some of these larger batteries. I think you even talk about that. While these batteries are just fine in a flashlight or whatever, or a drone, you right. put them to the size of a car or some of these other things, and there's an accident unfortunate but they do happen on occasion that could be a catastrophic it's a sun on fire in your garage or your driveway or at the street corner and um the local in in a lot of rural areas or even some metro areas they just don't have the ability to get that under control easy and it requires specialized training as well to put out i mean i almost lost my house to a lithium-ion fire uh for an electric um uh bike the battery pack went, went out. In fact, right. we've had a couple of them here in, in Bend, Oregon uh, go up and the, and there's been a warning about, you know, not charging the bikes uh, unattended as a result. 
they're still pretty safe. But 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 when but and my and it was my own fault for the for the fire because the battery was behaving badly and I tried to for, tried to force a charge, mm. um, and I was had a lot of faith in what was a pretty heavy containment container for the battery. But what I didn't realize is they hadn't spec the screws high enough, and the screws melted out of the containment. And then the containment was breached and then lit the bike's tires on fire, which almost lit, almost took out my house. Right. Now I'm fire trained. Right. So the, so fortunately, once I became aware of the fire, we got it out pretty quick, but it still did about 10 grand worth of damage to the garage. So the, right. so the, so the, even though we caught it pretty quick, it did a ton of damage. And with lithium ion, that it burns hot enough to melt aluminum. Right. So that, so that, so you've got to be sure of the containment that the, the batteries are in. And often, you know, if it's electric bikes or scooters, not much containment at all. The cars have decent containment, but as you point out, if they've got an accident or something that's breached the containment or damaged it, then you've got issues. And then once once these things go up, they have the tendency to reignite. Right. And and they're, and because their fuel source is internal, it's really hard to put them out. The right. the uh, just suffocating them ain't going to work. And and you and you've got to make sure you remove all the alternative or all the extra fuel sources away from the battery so it doesn't spread. And ideally, get the damn thing out from underneath the house. So it doesn't catch your house on fire, or so the smoke itself doesn't do thousands of dollars worth of damage. Right. So it's 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 it's. I mean, net net, we don't have the proper sensors on these things. Um, we don't have the proper uh, fire suppre- suppression technology in our garages for them at the moment. And even though they are arguably much safer than gas cars, have you ever seen a gas car fire go off? Right. Uh, it's no less. I mean, it's it's it, it it's far less safe. That gas goes up explosively. Uh, the the uh, lithium ion batteries typically don't explode. They're hot, right. but 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 they won't blow up the front of your house. A gas fire can. The the uh, but on the other hand, the lack of training with regard to material is is far lower. I mean, I got trained even before I was working for for a fire department on how to deal with gas fires. I've never got formal training on how to deal with a battery fire. And the, and I imagine that that's true of an awful lot of professional firefighters still. Yeah, I, I think one of the points of somebody I was talking about familiar also with this conversation, they were saying, look, we're, please don't hear that we're saying um, no electric vehicles or anything like that. All we're saying is that people go out and they get their electric vehicle and they're like, oh, cool. And they 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 just are not aware of all of the risks and all of these other things. They they are you know they're more focused on how do I drive it and how do the the devices work and um and anyway Professor Sadoway was saying as it relates to um, this storage he said look while we're trying it's got to be safe it's got to be easy to operate and it has to be sourced from local materials it does us no good to source something from across the country or another country or, you know, have to ship stuff. They're they're, they're actually tearing down a lot of the rainforest to mine for some of these materials, which is just insane. Why why would you, I mean, if you're trying to implement electric cars to save the environment, you don't mow down the, 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 a forest, especially not that forest. Right. You want to, to solve the problem because you're, you're, you're potentially causing more harm than you are good. It's a, it, it's very, it's very much like often the, the, we seems like we're ruled by crazy people, but the, right. but the, uh, well, but we're yes, ruled by so money. Green cars can be far better than gas cars. And in many right. ways there are, but some of the practices that surround them, not so much. And, right. and, and it's the great thing is we can fix that stuff. Right. Well, that, and that's, and that, for sure. And what he said was, that's why he's really high on technologies like liquid metal. There are other technologies out there. They're not bombs. They're very safe. The materials are locally sourced, all these other things. But he said, here's one of the really cool things, the unintended consequence of making these multi, multi, multi megawatt um, capable things is along the same, at the same time, 
we've developed something that's about the size of a refrigerator that would stay in your home, that it cannot explode. It does not explode the way the chemistry works. It is very, very safe. It's it, all these other things. The chemistry works like this. Yeah. And, um, and so now when you, as the sun or whatever, the wind is uh, creating energy for you, you fill up this refrigerator-sized thing. And if it's full, it tells it, the cells, I don't, I don't need it anymore. I don't need it anymore, right? And then when you plug in your vehicle or your home or your whatever, because it's running a trickle through that, right? It's feeding off of that as the energy is. Um, that's probably for the average home, a um, uh, little over a week. They estimated. I forget how many kW a day was the average home, but in any of it, and that ranges by where you are in the country and other things. And how but, much power you're pulling. And, and how yeah. much, all these other things. But he said, but even when you plug in an electric vehicle, that's usually 48 to 72 hours worth of capability. And so what happens then is there's not this massive load on the grid. You're drawing down on your battery, which is healthy for the battery. It recharges during the day well, from the sun. You, you make it right. intelligent so that, that when the grid's got a problem, and that's what's happening with the Tesla battery setup right now, is when the grid's at overcapacity, ra rather than firing up another plant, they just tell the homes that have these battery packs, you're going to power off your battery packs for a while, not power off the grid, and we'll be able to maintain a much lower electrical profile and keep those dirty plants from having to come online. So it, it's as we make these things smarter, even with existing lithium-ion technology, uh, we can do a much better job of, of managing grid load uh, than we are currently, as long as these units are talking back to the provider and the provider can, you know, use their tools to better manage the overall production. You know, up initially when you put put uh, solar power on homes, it created huge problems with grid management because those things weren't being managed by the grid operator. They were being managed by the homeowner, which had no idea what the loading was going to be on the grid. And so you had a real potential for overcapacity issues. Um, um, with a lot of people generating power when use, usage was low, and now power is going the wrong way into the generating plants, which can be a problem with keeping those plants up and running. So that so the um, so it's getting better because there we're now the industry is approaching this as a more of a holistic thing rather than you know having people put in their own little microgrids. Right. But their microgrids aren't talking to each other, nor talking to the provider. The next generation of stuff will be talking to the provider and then, and then the result is a system that can, is no, is more sustainable not just from a green standpoint but more sustainable from a reliability standpoint as well so for instance even if even if an upstream transformer goes out the provider can say hey for all you guys that have batteries for a period of time while we're replacing the transformer you're going to be providing power for the environment for that for the neighborhood so nobody goes down and, and you're sharing power up and you, and you get credited back for that, of course, mm -hmm. um, while we replace the transformer. So it keeps the, it, it increases the uptime for everybody. When do you think we'll practically see where maybe not nationally, but in, um, I mean, some metro areas that are being developed for big hyperscale data centers and other metropolitan areas, they are building in the infrastructure to do this. But if we're just talking about, the well-established traditional metropolitan areas around um, the U.S., when do you think we're going to have momentum for the grid to really handle, uh, I don't know, 30% of the population has has electric vehicles and, and they don't have to do a lot of manipulation to make sure that they can charge? And I say that with this one caveat. So I have lots of family in the West Coast. My parents... Um, after World War II, grew up in the Bay Area, all up and down uh, from Southern California. 
And a lot of those folks are leaving because they're sick and tired of brownouts and aging infrastructure. And again, not a political oh, thing. They're just like, this, this isn't working great. And um, for a variety of reasons, it's not working great. And so we, uh, we're making a, a change. So not counting where the grid itself is, is, tr- is trying to be repaired in the midst of a re- rejuvenation. Just I'm bringing in a load that I never expected into normally healthy grids. When do you think you're really going to start seeing um, where we don't have to worry that much um, in a, er, with the early adopters in electric vehicles? Well, it depends where you are. If you're in Scandinavian countries, you can do that now. Uh, the, the, uh, the, they were very aggressive in, in terms of implementing technology that would allow them to go aggressively electric without any of the downsides. Um, the um, Singapore, I believe, is also uh, well ahead of the curve, as is um, uh, South Korea. Uh, the, here, we kind of still lack the will to get this done right. Um, and we need an event. I mean, one, a, a Republican administration probably isn't going to do this at all. Remember, uh, Reagan was the guy that pulled the solar panels off the White House that, mm-hmm. that Carter put on there. Um, and Republicans have been very, very t- tied to the petrochemical industry. And so with that kind of thing, I'm, they're not only going to fix it. On the other hand, d- Democrats haven't really had the will to fight this to the level it needs to be fought. Um, and so I think it's going to wait for a trigger event. And I expect that trigger event is going to cover happen sometime between 2028 and 2035. What's uh, a trigger where, event? Where, what do you mean? I mean, trigger event. Well, in other words, where something becomes so catastrophic that people say, hey, we got to fix this. Right. Um, the uh, um, With the current growth rate of electric vehicles, we're going to hit a gore point somewhere towards the end of the decade where, where we're going to have some very serious um, energy problems. Uh, and and a, and a lot more of these brownouts and blackouts, and that will that my belief is that will drive a, a seed change by both parties to recognize that part of the infrastructure needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed aggressively because people really don't like living in the dark, and the uh, and you, you're not going to get voted metaphorically back into speaking if your constituents are, are are can't turn the lights on. Yeah, um, what, the other thing that's really interesting to me is you know once upon a time when we talked if we were talking about electric vehicles. 10 years ago, generally speaking, yeah. we meant we meant a little bitty car with a couple seats in it and maybe some cargo space in the back. Well, except for, except for that GM trial car. But yes, you, generally but, you're but right. I, I mean, it, the, the public persona was, you know, sort of the, the evolution of that would eventually Pre-Tesla. become the Prius, right? Exactly. And now it's the Jag. It's BMW. It's every Exotica. But here in uh-huh. Georgia... And I'll bet you in most of the country, believe it or not, that Ford F-150 electric vehicle people um, or whatever, as vehicles, I guess what I'm trying to say as vehicles, whether they're bicycles, uh, sedans, trucks or whatever, the thing I see myself driving becomes affordable and available to me. And the idea of this convenience that I just plug it into my driveway, um, I think in your article you talked about uh, range initially was 20 miles and now... Um, can be up to forty miles on the hybrid. I think oh, it was your hybrid. hybrid. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's for that's for a plug-in hybrid. That Matt was talking about my wife's Volvo. That when we got it, it was a twenty-mile range, and then the year after we got it, they went up to forty miles, which would have been perfect. Right at twenty, just a little short. Right, but but, but, yeah, but yeah, even now, I'm thinking to myself, really, every day when I the every day that I need to drive, not the outliers, ninety-eight percent of the time, forty miles of range. I will rarely go to gas or something or propane or whatever else it might be. I would probably stay electric. 
and I wouldn't have to fast charge it. I would just trickle charge it and it would charge overnight and it would be just fine. And even if it didn't complete its charge, it still has two or 300 miles of range because I only used 25 miles of it. So it feels like there is an opportunity there in those circumstances. But when a preponderance of people do that, even at a slow charge, it is going to put uh, stress on in, in a, the data center world, we're already seeing some of the grids around the country, in particular Northern Virginia, coming back saying, whoa, because data centers, you know, we uh, the world has uh, only increasing its appetite for data and the facilities that host data and all these other things. And we're working very hard to be wildly efficient, to be very green, moving to um, strong, another conversation for another day. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of consumption growing and Already, grids are starting to say to providers like us, "Hold on, we need to, you know, we need to be um, very thoughtful in how we're planning out how we're going to consume this stuff to make sure our infrastructure can keep up." And uh, I just see the uh, that that's why your article, I think, really caught my not I think I know caught my attention because I don't know that I had really thought about all of the consequences of of really growing this uh, user base. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's 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 it. Yeah, it's, right. it's that, and one thing that the crypto miners actually did us a favor in this regard is because they created the catastrophe far earlier than it would have happened with just electric cars, and woke up a lot of the grid providers to the fact that they didn't have enough of it. And so at least now we're seeing a, a certain amount of build out that might not have occurred for a few more years that will mitigate this problem somewhat. Um, which would not have happened if it had been for the crypto miners. And in fact, right now the crypto miners are, are going off the grid. Crypto mining isn't profitable at the moment. So the, so that so that's freeing up capacity for things like electric cars and, and giving us a bit more headroom that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Right. Well, I know I wanted to talk about other topics, but we've been talking for an hour and a half. And I feel like if we dive into any of these others, quantum computing and some of the other stuff that I'm really interested that you've got some great articles on, uh, my bladder shirt certainly can't take it. Um, so why don't we do this? We're going to direct people to your website and to all the different places that you write to. And hopefully in a few months, we can get you to come on, uh, come back and talk about some of this really cool stuff. We didn't get into some of the new developing chip stuff with uh, AMD and Intel. That's really interesting. What I like is you don't just talk about, here's the architecture. You talk about, here's how this is going to be today and probably in the future, practically in the future, and help to change our world. Generally speaking, the earlier conversation notwithstanding, you're pretty optimistic about these things. So I I dig that. But it's um, they're absolutely intriguing conversations. I think our audience will really enjoy them. Oh, I'll look forward to it. All right. and we, and we never and we, we never did mention why Star Trek got, got the uh, got the whole holodeck thing wrong. Well, t- tell us now. We got a couple minutes. Yeah, let's just do it real quick because because we think about it, Star Trek Next Generation was the one that introduced the introduced the holodeck and the, right. and so the, and if you remember in several of the episodes, they'd go into the holodeck and and they wouldn't realize that the holodeck wasn't reality. In other words, that the holodeck was right. was recreating the Enterprise. And they thought they were in the enterprise, but it wasn't. They were in the holodeck. But if you think about using hard light and the fact they were able to use hard light and and, and use use have people actually exit the holodeck, have avatars exit the holodeck and exist in the in the real world, is they could have done that with the with the entire bridge. That the entire bridge could have been a holodeck representation. And when, and when they go from exploration to battle, 
all of the all of the systems, all all of the arrangement, the the the, the battle councils, all could have changed virtually to match what the enterprise was then going to do. They didn't need to have physical structure. And remember when they battled the sparks coming out right. of the place and the rest of it, all of that could have been, could have been because it's virtual. It, it it can take shocks. It doesn't blow up. Um, the the uh, the uh, they'd have to harden the emitters, but but far easier than hardening all the equipment in the environment. So once they had the ability to create all this stuff with hard light, why create it with 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 hardware anymore? Just create it with hard light, and that way you can alter it as the need need exists, and have a flexible bridge as opposed to a a, a, a static bridge. And so that so I just for whatever reason they didn't make that leap, even though they did in episodes. They didn't really make the leap to say, okay, here's how we could use this technology to really make this bridge, this human interface into the enterprise far different. Not to mention you could populate the enterprise with virtual entities, much like they did with the doctor who was a virtual entity. Right. You could have 30, 90, 100% of your crew could be virtual. So, so why have a bunch of people you have to feed when you could do it with with an entire crew of, of virtual folks, so that so and they, and they kind of explored that a little bit with discovery, but but never really went far enough. So the so the so the potential to do some really interesting things in um, in Star Trek and other science fiction shows is also going to be interesting as we go forward. I think so, but I think I know the answer to that, and it's uh, yeah. I don't think it's very um, scientific. Uh, um, you, I'm sure you saw the show, the cult classic Office Space. Yes. Yes. And they were interviewing the gentleman. I forget his name now. I could see the actor. He looks like. Um, uh, well, anyway, I'm not going to say that. I'll keep it. Keep it. It's a corporate podcast. So I need to keep it in bounds. But anyway, um, they said. So what do you do? Well, one of the things I do is I take a fax from that machine, and I people. Some of my audience won't know what a fax is, but I take a from over there, and I put it over there, and I and I fax it. So you pick up a piece of paper from here, and you carry it over there. Yes. So what do you got? I got people skills. And I guess what I mean, how I'm relating that is, why didn't they do that? Because for somebody in that world, it was a job and it was a, it was protected or it was something and they just didn't want to, um, we wouldn't want to take full advantage of technology or the opportunity because um, we'd put out people that are carrying faxes from one side of the holodeck to the other. Yeah, maybe the other thing is is probably probably trying to limit their um, special effects budget. <laughs> the, the 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 sets were set sets, yeah, and and creating the, the where they were virtual since hard light is the real thing. Right, I uh, would have been an awful lot of work to to redo those sites. So the, though they really would have only needed maybe two or three stages for that to happen. You'd have a, a explore phase, a battle phase, and then maybe some other phase that they hadn't they hadn't. Uh, they hadn't come up with yet, but that, but like that, let's we're fight, we're fighting the Borg. Maybe we need a special setup for that. But that, but the, uh, but in the end, it probably had a lot to do with the with the special effects budget at the time. Yeah, I I think that's probably it exactly. They always does. It always comes back to money, Rob. Always coming back always to money. money every time. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, and if you've enjoyed the episode, uh, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Um, we will post links link below to uh, all of Rob's material and maybe where the secret room is. We'll see you next time, everybody, on the QTS Experience. Take care. We'll see you.